Good morning to all of you. Uh, thank you very, very much for uh, tuning in to the Level Up uh, program again this morning. I am uh, super excited. Obviously, it's May 26th, uh, our last Level Up of the year uh, before the summer break, actually, rather. Let me just correct that. Uh, and we have a, a terrific guest today. Today's program is going to be a little bit different. It's going to uh, talk about a subject that for many years was uh, really kind of swept under the rug. There was this stigma that was attached to mental health and mental illness and, you know, the struggles that typically uh, accompany um, those challenges. And a lot of you on this call, just through a series of calls that you've been on over the years and, and our program before, know that we have had uh, immense mental health issues in my immediate family. Uh, we have had immense addiction uh, issues in our family, um, you know, uh, relating to, you know, death, uh, suicide, etc. Uh, so this is, is a particular conversation that's different. It's not necessarily about featuring, um, you know, an individual and us talking to you about leadership. This is talking about uh, the very, very real um, you know, issues that we all suffer with, uh, whether it's ourself or our family or friends or someone we know, uh, and the health, uh, mental health issues, um, and the crisis that so many of us have to continue to uh, deal with. So my guest today is a gentleman by the name of Alan Keller. Alan is a mental health advocate. He is an international keynote speaker. He is a best-selling author of four books, Alan has instructed various mental health related uh, college courses. He spent many years working as an addiction counselor and a clinical case manager. He has persevered through the lifelong effects of mental illness, addiction, trauma, suicide, and he speaks from a place of experience as his own mental illness struggles began at the age of 14 and intensified at the age of 17. His commitment and understanding of the lifelong process of recovery has enabled him to inspire and equip audiences with invaluable tools. Alan hosts a podcast based on his book, Mental Health, It's Time to Talk, that showcases individuals who have persevered through their own mental health challenges. Alan lives in Saskatoon with his wife, Tanya, four sons, four dogs, and a cat. Alan, thank you for being here. Uh, I know it's uh, noon uh, where you are, so good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gary. Thank you so much for the opportunity to put a face and voice to these issues and that was a beautiful segue into this conversation. Thank you. Good. Well, you know what? We're really excited to have you here. I mean, it's such a it's going to be such a, a fresh perspective. And I know just your daily, you know, conversations with people that it's everywhere. We all, you know, are dealing with it. We know someone who is dealing with mental health uh, challenges. Uh, before we start, I'm just going to really quickly uh, thank our sponsor, First National. Uh, you've been ter uh, terrific partners for a very long time. Thank you for the great work that you do. Uh, to any of you who are tuning in on any of the live streams today or any of the uh, direct connects through one of our, our, our brands, uh, please feel free to send us questions, make comments. Uh, anyone who sends us questions or make comments, we're going to make sure we get you one of uh, Alan's uh, books sent out. Um, it's time to talk. I think it's uh, really, really timely. It's a collection of amazing stories from individuals that have, you know, uh, shared their stories. And I think you'll find it that it will really uh, resonate. Uh, so, Alan, let's go back to sort of uh, the beginning with you. I mean, you know, obviously you were raised uh, in a small town. You you were from uh, Saskatoon. Uh, and, and obviously, um, you know, you've had some some very uh, um, difficult times. Maybe just talk to us about growing up and when you realized that you had struggles and just share your story with us. Absolutely. What's interesting, Gary, is, I mean, nobody grows up wanting to struggle with mental illness, right? Nobody grows up wanting to become 
an addict. Like I, I didn't put in my grade eight yearbook, oh yes, uh, one day I hope that I can become an addict. And in the same way, I definitely did not grow up thinking that I would ever become a motivational speaker. It has been a journey to say the least. And yes, as you alluded to, grew up small town Saskatchewan and my identity was one in which I was fortunate to excel in athletics, in academics. Gary, I could always be seen with a smile on my face. And there is a great line that says, all it takes is a beautiful fake smile to hide an injured soul. And those were the words of the late Robin Williams. And that resonates for me because I hid behind that proverbial mask. And for everyone joining us today, how many of you can't relate to that idea of smiling on the outside, but on the inside, there's a lot of pain. And the, the problem for me is I had no idea how to talk about my pain. It wasn't modeled to be vulnerable or to reach out for help. And so when my challenges with mental illness began in grade eight, I just, I just suffered in silence. You know, my challenges started with something that was later diagnosed as body dysmorphia. I, I, I could never look in a mirror. I hated, I hated the way that I looked. And I actually left for a private school as soon as I was 16. I left home. And that's where my challenges with mental illness, as you said, really escalated. And the thing is, all, all the signs were there. But nobody knew how to approach me. Like the teachers didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. And what's the message that we get when we're in pain and nobody approaches us? Oh, that's right. Nobody cares. But see, they did care, but they lack the tools. Obviously, information is power. And again, I just I just kept all the pain inside. And, and so then as soon as I, I graduate from private school, Gary, where do I go? I go to Holland for a year. You take a kid who's raised in like this rigid Mennonite environment, you put them in Holland, watch out. And it was like <laughs> this animal that got out of its cage. I, name a color. I have dyed my hair every single color. I put, I think I put nine holes in my face and my ears. I pierced, you know, everywhere. And I, I dressed how I wanted to. I think it was my way of like, F you to the world. I'm going to take control. But I was so out of, out of control. I, I turned to self-harm. I turned to alcohol. I turned to gambling. I turned to everything outside of myself so that I didn't have to be with self because I basically had no relationship with myself. And when I eventually returned back to Canada, it was just a downward spiral. And I, I realized pretty quick, ah, I have to do something like this. This, this is going to kill me. And I was finally able to meet with a doctor and it was so hard to be vulnerable it was so hard for me to reach out for help i did and then i i remember walking out of that office with a a prescription in hand and and that was the start of so many medications i mean i think over the next few years gary i was put on it was a combination of 11 or 12 different pharmaceutical pills in six years I have seen almost 30 different mental health professionals. I've met with so many psychiatrists. I was hammered with all the labels. As I said before, I, I didn't know who I was. So I was given a label and I just, you know, I ingested it. And I was like, oh, that's who I am. And it was absolute chaos for a long time. I spent most of my life 
trying to harm or kill myself without really understanding the why. Shame, shame dominated my life. Um, you know, th there's a lot of talk in addiction about this, this uh, proverbial bottom, isn't there? I yeah. had many of those, one of which uh, I, I was teaching. So I was uh, on a field placement when I was in Edmonton at a junior high school teaching special ed. And at this point, my life is just fueled with alcohol. I'm a compulsive gambler. I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I'm having seizures every day. And, and Gary, I walked out of that classroom and I just collapsed in the hallway. And it was one of those points where it's pretty hard to hide that. But, but still, even when, when my students are hovering over me and they're like, oh, Mr. K, are you okay? Uh, again, it's, I just smile. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I was so far from good. And, and that was one of those catalysts where this, this understanding of, okay, if you want something different, go figure. You have to do something different which for me required vulnerability. Getting myself into support groups where other people spoke my language, where they had similar lived experiences. So eventually I get myself into, into groups like bipolar support groups. I got myself into Gamblers Anonymous. I got myself into Alcoholics Anonymous. I got myself into the Saskatoon Sexual Assault Center for other men who'd been sexually abused. It was so hard to do all those things, but it was so liberating because it was in those moments when I realized, what? What? I'm not alone. Uh, other people have these thoughts? Hmm. That was, that was significant. But see, I still had this victim mentality. There was an elder, Gary, who, uh, who he, I shared a bit with him and, and here's what he says. He says to me, Al, you are not the only person who struggled with mental illness. He says, you are not the only person who struggled with addiction. And Al, you're not the only person who's been sexually abused. He says, if you want something different, go get it. Because this world owes you nothing. Oh, uh, I mean, okay. There, there's truth in that. Could have said it nicer. <laughs> yeah. But, but that was also a game changer where I was like, okay, this, this victim mentality does not serve me. And my saving grace truly was I meet this woman named Tanya and Tanya had two sons and I had never been around children. And uh, they gave me this gift of loving me for me. It was like this first time where I felt like I actually didn't have to wear um, a mask. And when I moved in with Tanya and her two kids in Saskatoon, I was only three months sober. I moved from Edmonton to Saskatoon. I threw my last cigarette out in Lloydminster. Aw. <laughs> that chokes me up. It's, it's interesting how Sometimes we need people to believe in us um, more than we believe in ourselves, And that's what happened right there. Where, yeah. uh, Thank you for sharing. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Just there's my, my backer or my necker are going up. Um, let me go back to something you said uh, in the early uh, parts of this conversation. 
you said all the signs were there. You said all the signs were there, but nobody else recognized them sort of thing. So if we're on this call right now and, you know, we think all the signs are there or maybe, you know, we're missing the signs. It's, you know, a brother, a family member, a child of ours. When someone is really struggling, you know, much like a, a symptom for a medical condition, what are the symptoms or signs that we should be on the lookout for? I'll share some signs, but I'll tell you this, the, the number one thing for me is pretty simple and it's something that we all come into this world with and it is intuition, our guts. What I'm saying is if we think that there's a problem, there probably is. I feel as though often we prefer to live in this world of denial because it's more comfortable because Gary, it is hard. And you know this firsthand with your brother and other experiences that it is really hard to accept that that person might not be doing so well. And mm. so it's easier to ignore it. But then, of course, the problem only escalates the challenges. We don't always know what to do and what to say. But I think I mean, for me, it was just I started to to deviate from leadership roles Uh and I started to change my peer groups. I started to isolate. I started to withdraw. My grades were slipping. You know, those, those were some of the signs that were very evident for the people around me. Right. Yeah. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So once you met Tanya, obviously you said the children came into your life. And for the first time ever, you didn't have to be somebody you weren't or yeah, they just loved you for, for, for who you are. Um, having that, that sort of, you know, love and support, did, did that give you the power to just, cause I mean, it's hard, it's it, like, you know, I mean, I, I, not, this is, you know, this is just sort of independent of mine, but I mean, you know, like I, and many others have suffered with, you know, lots of anxiety, extreme anxiety, at different periods of our life. And, you know, and I can just speak firsthand. You don't want to share that. I mean, I'm always trying, no, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'll get through it. I tell myself constantly right that you know it's it's a superpower to be able to deal with anything yourself and and not you know not not spread it out to the world right and you know as you as i hear you speak i i realize that hey that's not you know always the always the the best way to do it talk to us maybe about that you're sitting here right now you're resonating someone's hearing you speak and saying i feel that way or i don't feel like i'm whole or i'm questioning myself there must be more to life right now like is this all there is or whatever it happens to be how do you make that first step where you go, okay, I feel this way. What can I do right now today to take that first step? Yeah. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of Dr. Phil, but there's this great line that he says, you know, he'll, he'll say, how's that working for you? Yeah. Oh, not, not very good. Well then what are you going to do about it? Silence is not the answer. I came to this understanding pretty quickly that uh, emotions are energy and where I ran into problems, Gary, is I used to just suppress everything. I had the mentality that I can fix this. I can do this on my own. There's still to this day is this mentality that to reach out for help is a sign of weakness. Any single person who has ever given themselves permission to be vulnerable, who has ever reached out for help, knows full well that it requires absolute courage and strength to be vulnerable. I understand the risks that come from reaching out for help, but I also fully understand the rewards because as soon as I was able to put a voice to some of my pain, those emotions came out. The, the definition of healing for me is pretty simple. It's the more that we can get the darkness out, the more room 
we can make for light. Right. So then the first step for anyone who maybe thinks that, you know, they've been sort of dealing with this quietly for years is to find some sort of person to speak to, to unload on, find some sort of support group, you know, like just realizing that, you know, that many other people, they're not alone. Many other people have, are, are feeling a similar way. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it's key. It doesn't have to be a formal counselor, but a person of trust. And when it comes to trust, I, oh, I have a lot of issues. One, one of which <laughs> is definitely trust. And for that reason, though, I would always turn to a piece of paper because you can tell a piece of paper anything. And if you are an individual who is just sitting with all of that internal pain, it has to come out in some way. I didn't have the proper strategies and coping mechanisms. And for that reason, I turned to self-harm, alcohol, all these things to put a blanket over it. But once I was able to be free from it, whether it was talking, writing, physical activity, music, something healthy, then I was moving in the right direction. So how do you feel then, Alan, as, as someone who's gone through the system and now is an advocate and a, uh, a keynote speaker on it, how do you feel about pharmaceuticals? How do you feel about <laughs> antidepressants? How do you like, like, cause I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that are listening that are, that, you know, would like to hear your perspective on that. That is such a loaded question. And I'll say this, Pharmaceutical pills definitely have their place, 100%. Having said that, I feel as though we live in a society where we want to be better now. Fix me now. I still have a very hard time with sleep. And um, I, I am also somebody who becomes dependent on things very quickly. I meet with a lot of people, a lot of my clients who... It, it, let's just say that they're having a problem with sleep. They are very quick to jump to some kind of pharmaceutical to help them sleep better before they are willing to try some simple activities, whether it's progressive muscle relaxation, breathing, cognitive behavioral therapy, other things. I do believe that medication has its place, but I feel that that place is farther down the continuum. I think that first it's like, especially in the context of addiction. As an alcoholic, I did not have a drinking problem as much as I had a living problem, meaning I had to lift that proverbial blanket and I had to look at my pain. I had to face it in order for me to heal. And in my experiences, a lot of those pharmaceutical pills were just a, a blanket over a, a deeper root cause, which for me was pain. Right. Right. Um, talk to me about vulnerability. You know, you talk about seeking out someone to speak to. And then, you know, and finally, another you know thing you speak about is, is using your voice. I think the, using your voice and the vulnerability piece, um, you know, sort of uh, walk hand in hand. Vulnerability equals strength. How do you embrace and inspire that vulnerability? Vulnerability is very hard. It is still the greatest barrier for people to reach out, especially when it comes to men. Um, I, lo I lost my best friend, Justin Andres, to suicide because he had this belief that he didn't want to burden others with his pain. He, he struggled to give himself permission to be vulnerable. And what I found... From all the interviews that I did with the men, it was this great fear. It was always the fear just before making that call or, or reaching out for help. But if they could 
pick up the phone, fire text, or actually start to talk, they felt better. Of course they felt better because we already talked about this. Emotions are energy. Once they could get some of this out, they felt better. Every single person that I interviewed, myself included, understood that as soon as we put a voice to our pain, we become free from it. We don't then have to hide behind that proverbial mask. It, it is liberating. And I think that it's just, it comes down to we are often our greatest barrier because often what we think is going to happen doesn't happen. Where right. a lot of the people that I spoke with thought that they were going to be met with judgment. They thought that maybe it would perceive the way that they would be uh, or it would impact the way that they were perceived in their place of work. No, when they actually reached out to a person of trust, they were met with compassion and, and dare I say love. And more importantly, they felt better. It's, it's risk, but it's reward. I got a question for you around judgment. Um, and I think this is, will be helpful to a lot of people on this, on this. It is so hard to be an outsider, to see a family member or, you know, someone that you love or a friend that you just think continuing is continuing to make bad decisions and bad choices. And it's so easy to get mad at them and to say, smarten up, come on, you're better than this. Like stop being a dummy. And, you know, I could tell firsthand with, you know, my family, um, that, you know, with even my brother, you know, and I've said this before over the years, but the minute I realized that, Hey, you know what, like stop judging all the decisions he's making and just be there and tell him you love him is the day our relationship got way better and, and, and way closer. And, you know, I think he's way more open to, you know, sharing with me and I still don't get it right. I still get pissed off and I still say to him, what the fuck, excuse me, what are you doing? Like, what's a stupid decision? How do you, as what can you share with us that can, that can equip us with, you know, us as people who are family members to deal with it. So we don't get, you know, angry and we don't get, you know, frustrated. Like, I mean, the day I learned compassion around, around mental illness, it made our entire family made it way easier for the entire family. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And anger is often one of our go-to emotions. It's, it's hard, isn't it? To see someone that we care about, someone that we love deteriorate in front of our eyes, because basically we have front row seats to this, to this horrific show. Uh, we have four dogs and I love dogs because dogs don't judge dogs just truly love. And to your point, when, when we can, understand that this is actually just somebody who's in pain and they lack the tools to manage the pain. That's a game changer. And this is where I guess really information is power, isn't it? Because what I have come to understand is that especially when it comes to addiction, people are just trying to be free from pain. It is logical to want to escape pain and replace it with pleasure. Is it not? Right. I mean, the very first time that I drank, I felt what people probably call normal. And I was just so, so tired of feeling that pain. And then the problem is that we as hurt people end up hurting people. We project that pain. But when, when we can actually just be seen and loved as who we are, then yeah, that's a powerful thing. Having said that, sometimes in the supportive role, we have to also protect ourselves because I meet with so many parents and so many caregivers who lose themselves in the journey of the person who's struggling with mental illness and addiction. And, and I agree, you know, um, love can always remain, hope can remain, but to protect our own wellness, sometimes those boundaries have to be put in place and, and those are hard, but it's necessary because otherwise what happens is it's like this, it's like this three-legged race where, where we tie ourselves to them. And then if they fall, what happens to us, we fall. 
And, and this is the delicate process between enabling and detachment. So maybe just let's sort of continue on that. Um, those two items, right. Um, sort of enabling, you know, one, um, any, any advice around that or, or how to, how to, what, how to, how to walk that fine line between enabling it, but yet, you know, being perceived as not caring. Yeah. You know, enabling in many ways is often described as killing with kindness and the intention is pure, but sometimes, and this is what's twisted, sometimes, especially in our addiction, we have to experience these proverbial bottoms for us to realize this sucks. Nice. You know, I, I, I don't want this anymore. And I think that at the end of the day, this is totally dependent on the individual who's in the supportive role. As soon as you feel like this situation is impeding on your peace, on your ability to enjoy your life, then it comes down to who is in the position of power and control. And it is not the other person. We control our thoughts, right? We control our actions. And this is where we have to turn our focus towards self. And that is not being selfish because often it's like there's guilt. You know, I got to take care of myself. Well, I'm not sure if they're going to make it. You say and do everything so that you don't ever have to look back thinking that you should have done more because, you know, suicide, for example, that's real. A lot of times, sometimes we feel like if we're not there for them, they might not make it. Right. Th they might not. Right. But that's that's not ours to carry. Right. Talking about suicide and, um, you know, I, I read in, in one of the books, men are dying at a suicide rate that is three times greater than than women than females. Why is that? Why is that? You know, when I was a kid, it was the scripts that were around me, scripts which still exist today, that to reach out is that sign of weakness. And when we don't see different things being modeled, such as reaching out for help, then then we won't model those behaviors. And so unfortunately, for many of us as men, we hang on to those old scripts. There, there is one of the, in that book that you're giving away on men and mental health, one, one of the stories features a, a guy named Murray, Murray Drew. And he used to always say, Gary, he, he would always say, I would rather die than ask for help. That is deafening. But that is the result of all of those scripts that he grew up with. And those are the scripts that prevent people Dave, you are on the ball. Look at that. There's Murray Drew. Dave's working behind the scenes. He pops that one up. Impressive. Yes, that's that's Murray. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, so what what sort of conversations should we be having? Right? Like, how do they, you know, how do we bring? I mean, it's just is it is it just simply like, hey, we're here for you. You know, if you ever want to talk, you know, please let us know if you want to unload. Like there was a comment on it. Actually, I want you to do me a favor first. Go back to the comment, Dave, that, that Romy put up there. I thought it was beautiful. Her last comment, compassion and understanding is the key to the person not feeling stigmatized. Because I know firsthand when someone's approached me and you get frustrated with it and you want to just go, what's going on? You know, they must feel like very, like they're very, very, very judged. That's a really good point. Thanks, Romy. Okay, so Alan, sorry, just 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 jumping back. I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, move over for for a minute. You talk about four values to live by, 
right? And I'll read the values out. You can maybe talk about them. Authenticity, passion, connection, and transformation. Do you want to talk about those those four values and, and how they help? Sure. And then I'll jump back to that previous uh, point Great. about the approach because I think that that's key. The Why, for me, Gary, the the most important one is authentic is, you know, I think that what people want more than anything is someone to just be their authentic selves. I, I, I know what it feels like to hide. And that is exhausting. We all know what it feels like to hide behind that proverbial mask. And yes, granted in our day-to-day life, sometimes we have to wear that mask and smile. Um, but when we can be our authentic self, it becomes uh, liberating and even in terms of leaders, you know, I, I meet with a lot, a lot of leaders and I work with a lot of managers who feel that they just have to always present as strong, always appearing as though they're in control. And if they are vulnerable, then it's going to appear as weak when, no, in my experiences, it is the complete opposite. If, if any of us can just be our authentic selves and say, you know, it doesn't have to be in great detail, but hey, today's a tough day. It's, it's this understanding that vulnerability breeds vulnerability. When we can see someone being okay talking about some of their pain, what that does is it gives us permission to do the same. The two most powerful words in this world for me are me too. Me too, because that has to do with connection. Yeah, our uh, our friend uh, Joe Roberts just uh, chimed in. Everyone knows uh, Joe from before, Skid Row CEO. And he said, weak is strong. Yeah, Joe, good to see your beautiful face up there. Thanks for making this happen, brother. Yeah, I really appreciate that, uh, that Joe. Okay, so let's jump back to that piece that we wanted to uh, jump back to. Oh, right, yes. See, this is the, this is the challenge for me with ADD. I'm all, I'm all, I'm all over the map. But I do remember... Um, that question. And I think that, that, you know, sometimes we have this inclination, this natural inclination to want to fix, to talk. Elders always remind us that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. If we can understand that it is not our job to fix someone, if we can understand the power of compassion and just listening, that will serve us well. Because often we'll have this intuition, this understanding that someone around us isn't doing very good. And I I think that the most effective way to approach people who are struggling is to simply say this. Ah, I I don't mean to pry. I just want to let you know. I'm a little concerned. I just want to let you know. I'd be more than happy to listen if you ever needed to talk. Because because if you put that invite out there, you have just said that not only do I see you, but now I'm going to give you the invitation to be heard. And that is powerful. And should they choose to act on that invitation, then all we have to do is bite our lip, zip our mouth, and just listen. Because, because Gary and anybody listening, how, how many of you can't relate to that where where you you had a stressful day, you were frustrated, and you just talked about your frustration to someone that you trusted, and they listened. And at the end of those 10, 15 minutes, you sit back and you think, ah, I, I feel better. Why do you feel better? We already talked about this, emotions are energy, and you were able to be free from it. 
There you go. Vulnerability is the new strength. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I firsthand on numerous occasions just because of sharing sort of, you know, our family history over the years had people that reached out to me and, you know, our friends of people that have reached out to me and said, would you call this person, Gary? I know he respects you or something. And I know he's going through a, a troubled time. I don't know exactly, you know, what's going on, but I know it's, it's not, it's not right. And just by reaching out and talking to these people and, and just saying, Hey, are you okay? So-and-so is, is concerned with you. And then making it, making it, make, making them feel that it's okay. Cause I've been through it. I've been through it firsthand with the family member. I can just see these people absolutely just like unload, you know, emotionally, because as you said earlier on, Alan, it just allows them to say, okay, I'm not the only one. You're making this sound normal to me, Gary. You're not making me feel stigmatized. Like I'm an outsider. You've actually felt this and dealt with this. And you know that eventually, you know, there's hope and it will get better if we take the steps. Share with us the power of hope. I know you talk about the power of hope and, and how you use hope and how we can empower people with hope. Hope is everything. That's, that's, that's the only word that comes to mind with hope for me, Gary, everything. I also understand that hope requires action, though. And see, I, I, I was a runner. Did you know that you cannot run from yourself. You cannot run from self. Write that down. Yes, against all odds and against all logic, we still have hope. That is, that was the foundation of my of my recovery, of the life that I have today. I moved 12 times in six years. The one thing that I took with me every time was this little picture that was gifted to me from my parents. And it's this picture of a sunrise. And it says, no matter how long the night, the dawn will break. That was my image of hope. I hung that up in every single room because I always, I always said, like, damn it, one, one day I'm not going to have to fight so hard. There has to be more to life than this hell. There has to be. Um, And getting back to what I said before, then it required action. You know, it's it's not enough to just hope that, I, I think what I wanted is I wanted people to save me and then I realized, oh wait, what? We have to actually save ourselves, go figure. And the vulnerability piece was everything that opened up that door. So let's talk about maybe quickly, and I don't know if there's two steps or three steps or four steps, but just let's just chronologically sort of, you know, uh, lay it out. So the first one would be something like, you know, awareness, you know, asking for help, um, you know, second one would be, can you kind of just walk me through sort of like the steps that, you know, the average person needs to, to start healing? Yeah. You know, I actually think that there's a very distinct difference between acknowledgement and acceptance okay. because Gary, I could acknowledge for many years that I was not in a good place. To accept that was very different. I feel as though to acknowledge something is the mind's understanding and acceptance is the unity of mind and soul where we're ready to do something about it. Once we have accepted that we actually need help, we have to give ourselves permission to be vulnerable and make that call. And as soon as we can find that person of trust to just talk to, then it's this old saying that feeling is what leads to healing. And we just have to surround ourselves with people who speak that same language. Like I, I don't go to Alcoholics Anonymous to work the program as much as I go to be understood. Right. Got her. Makes sense. 
So sort of acceptance, uh, reach out, you know, try to find some, some like-minded people that are, are dealing with it. Uh, take action, you know, uh, obviously um, talk to us about maybe some of those action steps. So I've, I've, I've hit the point where I've, I've accepted it. I'm going to reach out. I'm, I'm going to, you know, um, hang out with like-minded people that have felt my pain and know what I'm going through and then taking action. What does that look like? What are the steps? It looks like work. You know, healing is work. I think that in often in our society, we have this beautiful picture of healing. Healing is ugly. Healing, healing is that ugly cry. It, it requires going to those places that a lot of people don't want to visit. And I remember an elder said to me, if you're going to go to those dark places, make sure that you take a friend and a flashlight. And I think for me, you know, after I accepted that I wasn't in a good place, after I gave myself permission to be vulnerable, I had to do the work, which meant I had to feel. And I spent most of my life trying to avoid feeling. I had to look at my shame. I had to look at my anger and I had to then learn new strategies to cope with it. Yeah. Sober, zillion proud. I am proud of that. And it's, it's a work in progress. You know, it, it doesn't stop. As soon as we stop working, then for me, especially in my recovery, I run into problems. So it is, it is very much highs and lows. I have great days. I have hard days. The difference is that I now have strategies in place. I have people in place that I can turn to and I have understood that I do not have to fight this on my own. Very powerful. Ellen, how do we talk to our kids about this? How do we talk to our kids and at what stage do we talk to our kids? When do we start talking to our kids about, hey, mental health is a real issue out there. We see it day to day. We're here for you. If you ever don't, like, when do we, when do we broach that? And how do we, how do we have that conversation with them? And at what point? And I, I just find it so interesting that I have four sons. I want to make sure that my kids don't have to fight through a lot of the same challenges that I did. And, you know, Gary, I go to so many communities after there have been suicides. So I'm called to go talk to schools, communities. I go to reserves. And what's interesting is I watch the adults. I watch the men in particular. And often they don't, they don't show emotion. They don't give themselves permission to feel. Well, kids are always watching, aren't they? And what I'm saying is if we as adults cannot give ourselves permission to be vulnerable, if, if kids can't see us maybe crying or reaching out for help, then why the hell would they? So for, for Tanya and I as parents, it has become imperative that we teach our kids to feel. We give them permission to go within. If they're feeling anxious, they now know what that feels like and they communicate it to us. We have now given them strategies and rather than us fixing it because we can't, we say, well, what are you going to do about it? We gave you the tools. So now, I mean, this morning, Gary, Tani was meditating with our 12 and 10 year old. What? <laughs> I, what I, you know, it's giving them those skills there. Yeah. Those, those are the two ones right on Dave. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I love that. Teach your kids how to feel. Right. And, and, and I guess, and I guess with that, right. Letting them know that being vulnerable and, 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 and actually sharing the emotions is okay. Is that, is that sort of the takeaway? A hundred percent. It's, it's like, we have to give them permission to have these conversations and, you know, um, like I, I just am someone who has a hard time crying, but if they can see me being a little vulnerable or that they can understand that I'm having a hard day too, 
it just, it just, it's that authentic piece. I am who I am. So Alan, how can we help as many people as possible for us sitting on this call today? How can we help? Is it just being on high alert? Like if we saw, if we see something that maybe seems off to us, if we use our intuition as you, uh, as you speak about, you know, many of us would just say, Hey, I don't want to get involved because maybe it's, you know what, they might feel insulted if I ask them about it, we should actually go the other direction. Like what can we do, you know, day to day by, but to be on high alert to help others. Yeah. It, Gary, that's so true, isn't it? Because sometimes we'll be like, hey, how are you doing? No, like, really, how are you doing? And they'll start to talk and we're like, oh, shit, sorry. Sorry I asked because this is getting a little long. I mean, if we're going to put that question out there with true intention, we better be ready to listen. And I think that what we can do is we can just be open to having these conversations. I think that we can continuously check in on the people that we care about, you know, leaving nothing left unsaid. It has to do with connection and forming those connections. It has to do with telling our story. Landsberg, Michael Landsberg wrote the foreword to, to that one book. And he says, you know, there's nothing contagious about mental illness, but there is something contagious about our stories. Gary, we all have a story. We all have a story. I think that we actually all need to share our story. Like our soul needs to express our story as much as someone probably needs to hear it. And in today's world with social media, it's it's been pretty cool, especially this last year, to see how many people just take the time to share their story. Dave, there you go again. One of the final stages of healing is when we are able to use our painful experiences to help others. That is a beautiful thing. I have the most <laughs> twisted sense of gratitude for the hell that I've gone through. Joe, I know Joe Roberts, you're on this call, and it's like you and me, brother. We, we have gone through hell and back, but we are being used. You know, we all, we all can take some of our pain and turn it into triumph. Yeah. It's funny. I believe that, you know what, you attract the most positive people to your life through, through, uh, through vulnerability, not triumphs, right? When you relate to people that I've gone through it too, and I know it, then, you know, it looks like we might have a better life or an easier life. So often that's not the case. Uh, the really nice comment on there from, uh, and a really powerful one from uh, Kristen is the isolation due to COVID. The isolation due to COVID the last couple of years has definitely pushed a lot of people further into the darkness. I lost a parent last year and still work from home and I'm struggling to try to move through the stage of grief. We had Dr. Uh, Drew Pinsky on here um, during the pandemic from the US, the very famous, you know, sort of drug and alcohol uh, credit uh, um, uh, crisis, um, you know, sort of advocate. And he had said actually that the last couple of years have been and will do uh, immense damage to, you know, to, to the fabric of our society. He said, it's the darkest days for so many people because we are forcing them into further isolation where they're alone. You know, what sort of impact are you seeing through COVID-19? And, you know, does that automatically get better as we start coming out of it? It gets better if we choose to make it better. Right. You know, I, I feel as though I love the Phoenix. We use the Phoenix. The Phoenix surrounds Justin's initials because it's all about rising up. The Phoenix is in our clothing line, Born Resilient Clothing, because it's all about rising up. Yes, there has been some absolute challenging times, some absolute destruction, devastation. The, the, the thing for me is I have to be very, very cautious about not slipping into that victim mentality because that, that is an old pattern for me. And it can be the woe is me. Things are very difficult. I, I think that for us, it's not to minimize our pain. It is not to minimize the grief because we have all experienced incredible losses from the pandemic. 
But I think the question is also, what are the lessons? What are the takeaways? And how can we use that as fuel moving forward? Because, because a lot of people would always say to me, Gary, I just can't wait for this to be done so we can go back to normal. If we, if we go back to normal, then we forgot the lessons that were learned. Because I'll tell you this, the, the greatest thing that it did for me is it forced me to slow down in this fast-paced, go, go, go world. It forced me to slow down. It forced me to feel, which was uncomfortable, but it also led to more healing. Yeah, unbelievably powerful. Listen, as we uh, as we get to the uh, the tail end of our conversation today, um, and I'm just going to wrap momentarily. Uh, Alan, is there anything that you think that we missed that we should have touched on? Um, we've got a few minutes left that you re- would like to uh, make sure you share. No, I just, Gary, I truly appreciate it. Gary, this is the last show of the year. The last <laughs> show of the year. And and it, it's meaningful to me because this is a conversation that it doesn't, it doesn't excite people. It doesn't draw people in like, oh, mental health. But it is so necessary. And I love and appreciate the fact that you and your team have made a conscious decision to put it front and center, to be vulnerable, open. I appreciate your own experiences. I know that other people on this call have similar lived experiences or they wouldn't be tuning in. I feel the support. I feel the love. I appreciate you. I appreciate you all. Alan, you're absolutely amazing. I mean, as I said, uh, goosebumps and hair in the back of my neck, as I, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, I don't know anyone who hasn't been affected by it one way, you know, or another, right? Whether it's them, uh, you know, by themselves or individually or someone in their family. And I think we're seeing and hearing more of it right now because the stigma finally after, you know, after centuries uh, is starting to dissipate. And we're starting to understand that this is life and life is not easy and it's not fair and it's hard for others and it's re- remarkably hard for others. And there's dark days and it's okay not to be okay every day. Right. I think is, is the message. And I think that, you know, we have to make sure that we all take this. And, you know, guys, I want you to be able to free to feel free to reach out to uh, Alan directly. Uh, Dave will put up his uh, social media uh, handles there. Uh, please go online. Please tag him. Please tag me. Um, if you're, you know, if you enjoyed this today, if you had great positive feedback, Alan, uh, and the kindness and, and the humbleness, you know, uh, of you and the fact that you're sharing your story to us um, and, and such a vulnerable story, uh, I can tell you on behalf of all of our listeners, uh, certainly, um, you know, our company, uh, thank you very, very much for being an incredibly great guy, for being a wonderful leader and, and a mentor and such an inspiration to so many. Absolutely brilliant. I'm so grateful. This is this is redemption. Um, yeah, thank you for your kind words. And Joe, again, thank you for allowing me uh, to be part of this. Thank you for introducing me to the great Gary. Yeah, Joey, we'll have to get together and have uh, lunch. Uh, we're overdue, uh, pal. Thank you, and thank you for the kind comments. Uh, once again, before I uh, before I drop here, I want to thank our sponsor, First National. Really appreciate you guys. May 31st, uh, CEO to CEO, I have Alex Lucas from Manulife. Uh, he's only been a few months in the CEO role, and it's going to be a great opportunity for us to get to know him better. And then June 1st, uh, very timely, uh, Eddie interviews uh, DLC's chief economist, Dr. Sherry Cooper. Could be one of the most impactful conversation broadcasts to date with Sherry. So looking forward to it, guys. We are back to the Level Up uh, broadcast series in the fall after the summer. Thank you for all of your loyalty, all of your support. Uh, appreciate uh, you, Dave, our team, and to most importantly, all of our agents and owners who are believing in us and continuing to represent us and, and make us incredibly proud of who we are corporately. Thanks very much. Have a great day, guys.